This week on The Zone of Truth, Griff and I recap the show through episode 191 and, of course, answer some listener questions. I'm your host, Steve, in the studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in The Zone of Truth. And we're back. Just you and me. Another intimate sesh. The way it should be. You and me. No cameras, no lights, no special lights. Yep. Just me and Steve in the dark. You touching my foot? I'll never tell. Ooh. Yes. I guess that's something the listeners at home, because this is a visual. This is not a visual medium. This is an audio medium. They can't tell that we're completely in the dark. You actually turn the monitor off on your computer. Yeah, they can't tell how much clothes we're wearing. Mm-hmm. Or how little. Yeah. What a time. What a time to be alive. What a time we have. All I can hear is our voices, and you can speculate based off of that. Mm-hmm. Griffin, it's another punishing weekend for us. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the saddle. Get a lot of those. Yeah, coming off of a uh, Poseidon's Bountiful weekend. Yeah. How'd you do after Poseidon's Bountiful? Not well, dude. Yeah? I was asleep on the couch at like eight o'clock Ooh. Uh, went to bed by 10 <laughs> slept through the night <laughs> so not great not great it, it kind of sucked all of the energy out of me which i guess you can expect after like two and a quarter fish sandwiches from yeah. various fast food restaurants yeah that'll do it that'll do it and we were drinking beer the whole time well not even beer we were drinking syrupy mountain dew <laughs> liquor you're right yeah seltzers we were drinking alcohol the whole time yeah i did end up going to see the batman again with brooks and emily afterwards i i gotta say griff i know it's probably gonna be too late to catch it in theaters but i know it's coming to hbo max soon i know that's Uh, that's actually what i'm waiting for Oh, okay (laughs) it's coming in like two weeks i think i think so really soon we'll have a little private screening me and you it'll be a good time all the the other lights off of course we'll put the back of the tv light on oh i do like that I'll tell you what, though, this isn't me just being a fanboy. It held up. It was so much fun going back a second time. I was able I just to just kinda, the fish talking. Oh, oh, I mean, the fish was doing the fish a little and talking. Liquor talking. Yeah, but it was so much fun. I mean, it's or like I said, it's not just the fanboy and me talking. It's a legitimately good picture. And this time around, I was able to just kind of relax and look for foreshadowing and look for little clues and Easter eggs and just enjoy the soundtrack and some of the visuals. Whereas before I was really locked into the plot because the plot's really good. I was able to take a step back because I knew what happened and really just kind of bask in it. You know, going back to the theater to see the same three hour movie, like two weeks later should not be fun, but it was, it was the fucking time of my life. So we'll check it out. It's going to be a good time. What have you been up to, man? So I've watched the first season of this anime. The premise is, fucking insane okay it's called that time i got reincarnated as a slime i have seen this on streaming platforms i have not watched it (laughs) so the main character gets killed in the first episode Uh uh-huh he's like a normal dude and gets reincarnated as a slime in a fantasy world love it but he kind of has like video gamey powers. The world is strange. It's kind of video gamey. Kind of like Sword Art Online or something a like that. A little bit, sure. yeah. And so he has all these special powers 
that allows him to, as a lowly slime, like start to kind of level up. Like he can, mm-hmm. he can devour other things and gain their special abilities. He has like the mimic ability, so he can like turn into anything he's devoured. All kinds of shit. But like, he basically becomes this like kind of demigod over the course of the first season, where Hell he yeah. like he starts doing bigger and bigger things. And starts this town, mm-hmm. and the town starts to flourish, and he like creates this town of like all monsters because normally monsters in this world aren't allowed to like live in cities with humans and dwarves and elves. So he starts like a goblin town, and then it becomes like a goblin town with dire wolves, and then they have orcs and ogres, and yep. like it keeps leveling up, and it's very kind of like again D and D fantasy game type thing it's they have this whole thing where like if you give a monster a name it gets way stronger okay so it's like a name monster in pathfinder sure, yeah. right like you have goblin a goblin b and then uh rip nugget yeah yeah and rip nuggets way stronger so that's kind of the way this world works but the guy is powerful enough that he can give most things a name uh-huh. so like this whole society starts forming under the slime because he like gives people names and like this town crops up and he recruits dwarves as the artisans and all this shit. It's pretty wild. It moves very fast. The hmm. the arcs aren't very long. That's not a bad thing. It's I can like, get into that. It's like they spend maybe three episodes dealing with this world ending orc lord threat where like one of these orcs has evolved into this demon lord or something that controls all the other orcs. Mm-hmm. And then like he devours. <laughs> just get rid of it. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like One Punch Man in that way, where like the problems all seem to just like be solved rather quickly by the slime. But uh, it's good for a laugh. <laughs> yeah, that sounds great. Where were you uh, watching it again? Crunchyroll. Crunchyroll. Got gotcha. yeah. Haley and I have Crunchyroll because we've been watching One Piece on that. Obviously, update on One Piece. We're past the time skip now. What do you think people enjoy more? Your One Piece updates or my True Blood updates? Well, I don't make like. I guess your True Blood updates are much more tame than your Twilight they are. references. Yeah, I, I do hold back. Yeah. I always like your True Blood updates because it's like, wow, the wildest display of sex and violence just happened. <laughs> I've yeah. been blown away yet again. <laughs> yeah, I just crossed the 50% mark halfway through episode six of season four. Oh boy, where do we go from here? But I'm not getting into it. This is your time. Well, yeah, that just puts us into around like 400 Mm. in the the One Piece episodes, which obviously it's at a thousand now. But yeah, progress. Amazing. I still say Thriller Bark was my favorite arc so far. So that was the zombie and kind of like horror arc. Nice. Very cool. Well, I've got a couple things that have been keeping me busy. Very exciting. I have some new music in my life I've been listening to. New Machine Gun Kelly album. I love it. He's got a lot of really good emo tracks on there, and I identify as emo now, so it works for me. (laughs) Now? Um, Now and the last 25 years. (laughs) There's a band that I used to listen to in college called Destroy, Rebuild, Until God Shows. It's a super group. Lead singer is Craig Owens of Chiodos. And they have been on hiatus for like seven or eight years and are finally coming back with new music. And the new music slaps. They released a few tracks. There's Destiny, King I Am, 
Satellites in Motion, and honestly, they only had the one album beforehand. And I liked it, but there was a lot that I kind of did not like about it as well. And these songs are just fucking good. They're bangers. Check them out. Then I got some more music to listen to. So last year, a really, really influential band of mine from Matumbe, a band called Architects, did one of those like live stream at home concerts. But they played through their most recent release, for those who wish to exist. They played it front to back with an entire orchestra backing them. Oh, that's cool. And I watched it when they did it last year and it was phenomenal and they released the audio for it as mp3 like you can stream it on spotify or listen to it or download it or pay for it or whatever it's fucking good it's really really good i was listening to it on the car ride over it's so much fun to listen to like all these like chuggy breakdowns and stuff with chimes and timpani and violins and stuff who boy they do such a good job so that was me geeking out about music for a minute but I also have a podcast recommendation. Oh, yeah? And this is one that I think people are going to be surprised that I actually enjoy. But I really, really, really do. Have you heard of this show called Newcomers? <laughs> okay. So it's two comedians, Lauren Lapkus and Nicole Byer. And they're watching movies for the first time ever. And the first 12 or so episodes are them watching all of the Star Wars movies. And they come in with some very critical takes because <laughs> they're comedians and they're having fun with it or whatever but they're both just really really funny people and for me it's really interesting because they have guests on who are really passionate about Star Wars and can explain things to them but it's like they're experiencing it for the first time and in a way I'm kind of re-watching the movies by proxy through them on this show and it's really cool it's interesting to see these people react to the movies as they come out and like call these movies and this fandom and this culture and this lore that I've been so steeped in and know every facet out on its bullshit like talking about how like the crawls don't make any fucking sense and everything's way too complicated and the release (laughs) order is ridiculous and they find a lot of things to like about the movies so it's not completely critical but it does call some legitimate criticisms to the franchise but in a very fun way, I'm really enjoying it. And I don't think I should because I'm such a fanboy of Star Wars, but they do such a fun job of it. I really would recommend people who like Star Wars to check it out. They are phenomenal. It's a good podcast. Yeah, Nicole Byer is really funny. I've seen a couple of things she's she's on. A host of the baking show on Netflix. Oh, yeah, nailed the, it. Uh, nailed it. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's phenomenal. There. <laughs> I found her through Doughboy. She's a guest on there all the time. She's so funny. But Griffin, I didn't plug it at the top. This is a little surprise, the folks uh, at home. Uh, How about you tell me what we're about to do? Well, I, I did bring this up. I brought this upon us. Yes, this was not part of the original agenda, but here we are. Haley, light of my life, went to the <laughs> grocery store and found a new brand of seltzers that has a summer pack. It's called the Cabana Pack. And the brand is Fun Water. Made in Ohio. Made in Ohio. It's actually an Ohio microbrewery. You want to know what they call themselves in, in full? The, sure. the brewery? Fun Water Hard Seltzer Slingers. What? That's what they call themselves. That's <laughs> that's the brewery. This is one of two packs from them. They also have the party pack. Did I name that? <laughs> 
Fun water, hard seltzer slingers. And I think the wildest thing about this pack is that <laughs> the flavors are, they're not flavors. No, no, they're not. So this pack's got poolside punch. And that's the closest that's approximation. That's the closest to a flavor. Like, okay, I think I can figure out what that is. Tropical teas. Who knows? What do you have over there? I've got two in front of me. I've got Beachside Blast, which I don't know, like getting finger banged on a beach or something. That's what I think. You start with the tropical teas and then, and then you, you lead get into the Beachside blast. blast. And then you're basking in the afterglow with this last flavor, Caribbean Dream. Caribbean Dream? What could that be? I don't know. It's funny because their other pack is all flavors. Okay, what's in the other pack? So the other pack is the party pack, and it's got... Wait, oh, okay, hold on. Maybe I maybe I didn't read these full flavors. Blue raspberry cherry lime. That's one flavor. That's one flavor. Oh, dear. Strawberry lemonade. Okay, yeah, sure. Prickly pear key lime. Huh? And then mixed berry. Wow. I'll tell you what. Fun water is really swinging for the fences on these. Yeah, so... I just want to temper your expectations. Okay. Because I took a look at the Unwater Hard Seltzer's untapped page. Hmm. I'm seeing some positivity. Okay. Sam is drinking a poolside punch by Funwater Hard Seltzer Slingers. Awful. Oh, no. <laughs> Not even one star. Ooh. It seems like poolside punch is getting... Well, no. There's a, there's a four star. So, on average, these guys are getting about a three. Which, for seltzers on untapped, that's not super uncommon. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think we're going to have to form our own opinions on these ones. I think so. Yeah, I was worried here in the reviews ahead of time that that might color my opinion. But knowing that it's a seltzer on untapped, take that with a grain of salt. Did you have a rating system in mind? I think... Because I could shoot from the hip, unless you got something good. I was thinking we probably have to go, you know, states of bliss here. (laughs) Okay. Right? Yeah, sure. So, like, at the bottom... You have just a tease. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah. And then you have a little bit of mounting pleasure. Okay, so mounting pleasure is the second one. So mounting pleasure is two. And then you're going to hit kind of the mid-road, that beachside blast. We're going to call that the blast. So it's a blast in the middle. Okay. And then it's a real punch to the gut when you finally... uh, That's a good thing? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, when you feel your your guts punching on the inside, that's it's up there. Okay, well, now I see. That's, yeah, sure. And then at the top, you finish the act and you're in the dream. Okay. So you got tease, you got mounting pleasure. Mount, yeah, I like you that. Your blast. Yeah, the blast. You got your punch. Yep. And then you got your dream. Okay. I will do my best to keep those straight. I'm going to probably be relying on you a little bit. Sure. Do we want to give these a try? Yeah, let's give them a try. What do you want to start? Ooh. Should we start with a tease? Yes. Okay. I'm going to yeah. smell these because, I, again, I don't really know the flavors. So on this tropical tease, the only thing we can go by is the contains alcohol label, mm-hmm. which does say that this has passion fruit, peach, strawberry, orange. Okay. So I have no idea how that's going to combine into a flavor. It smells very citrusy. All right. I see that you've taken a sip. I'm going to take a sip myself. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, that's a, it's kind of a strange combination. Like, I don't hate it, but it's very light. 
It's extremely light. Like it's, it's almost it's very LaCroix, but I don't taste any booze either. I actually think in some ways I like that better than LaCroix. LaCroix kind of dries me out sometimes. Mm-hmm. That was just a very inoffensive, low flavor. I mean, ephemeral. It was kind of sure. Yeah, I think I just got to go straight down the middle because I could crush a million of those, but there's nothing bad about it. Yeah. But there's nothing that jumps out. So. I remembered Mounting Pleasure. This would be a blast. This is a blast. Yeah, okay. Blast so the Tropical great. Tease is a blast. Yeah, I'm going to give it a blast as well, mm-hmm. based on that same logic. It's completely inoffensive, but God, I would be hard-pressed to nail down a flavor. Yeah, it's insanely forgettable, but I mean, drinkable for sure. Unlike some of the shit that we've tried in this segment before. So I'm going to pop open this Beachside Blast if you're okay with that. I'm going to also be reading off some of the ingredients here because, again, I guess we'll just try to approximate a flavor. Guava, orange, passion fruit, and then a bunch of scientific stuff. Yeah, this is puzzling. Yeah. It's puzzling that they wouldn't at least... We're getting that off of the ingredients label. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're digging for this. This is not forward. We're pulling that off the ingredients label. You'd think they'd give, like, some sort of hint of a description of flavor. Okay. He's so blessed. Now that one smells a little stronger. I gotta go mounting pleasure on this. It's it's also, so hard to place. Yeah, it's so here's where I went with this one. It's almost as inoffensive, but the flavor itself is just a little worse. Yeah. So I'm kicking yeah. it down to mounting pleasure. I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. But it's so strange that I can't discern a real flavor on that. This is just the most generic fruit. It's like if you poured like a tenth of a orange crystal light into a, a into a pint of water, into uh, into like sparkling water. Yeah, I'd yeah, say. yeah, yeah. That's so accurate. What the hell? It's very strange. I sure. mean, it, it's totally fine to drink. Again, it's just. I guess I'm so used to the Bud Lights and the, yeah. and the White Claws and the very strong seltzers, and even the ones that aren't strong from like a syrup perspective just seem to have like whether it's kind of like the spiciness of a Topo Mm. Chico or like the, you know. Before we started recording, I drank the orange soda, Bud Light seltzer soda. That could wake a man up out of a coma with that flavor. Like, it's very pungent. Yeah. And this is just a complete total opposite. Again, I think we're rating these a little low, but not necessarily because we dislike them. There's just not much there to rate. Yeah, there's not. Honestly, if you wanted a... (laughs) boozy sparkling water that doesn't taste like booze Mm -hmm. these are that yeah these are pretty damn close to that yeah i'm gonna hit up the next one and i'm hoping this one packs a little bit more of a punch as its name poolside punch here we have key lime mango pineapple and that's it and i'm hoping from those flavors sounds like something i would like but again all of these flavor ingredients go by that are like powerful flavors on their own. God, it just smells like it's not there. <laughs> I can't even like yep. smell it, man. For me, that one's got a little bit of a weird aftertaste. Honestly, again, not really a flavor at all, mm-hmm. but it kind of like stuck with me a little bit more than the other two. I'm probably going to give that a mounting pleasure as well. Sure. I'm going to go a hair higher. I'm going to give this a blast. I didn't quite pick up the same nasty aftertaste that you did, but again, just hardly anything there yeah i and i'm kind of hard pressed to even think that these contain alcohol that's how little of a flavor there is yeah you could give this to a four-year-old and they could take the whole thing down easy like there's not even a hint of it Mm -hmm. 
All right, well, let's bring it home with the Caribbean dream. See what we got here. I'm popping into this deep into the small text here. Passion fruit, strawberry, watermelon. Let's give it a shot. How can you have those flavors and like not smell? I don't know, Griff. What the fuck? All right, so you're still tasting here. I'm going to hop into my review. Again, I'm giving this a blast. That one, I think, was tasty, but there's not much to taste. I think that's the best one. It is like, the best I, one. I'm going to give it a blast as well because there's almost no flavor there. But good God, that's so strange. I will say this fun water is exactly as fun as the band called fun. <laughs> Do you remember like those fucking 2012 songs that like, we are young. So let's just like the slow ass. How did this ever get famous? These put water in the name fun water for sure. This is equally as fun as was water. This is tap water. (laughs) It's the wildest thing. I get more flavor out of like Perrier. Yes. This is crazy. Like tonic water is more flavorful than these. That is a true statement. That is absolutely a true statement that tonic water packs more of a punch than fun water. It's so weird. And it doesn't taste like alcohol at all, which, I mean, if that's what you're going for, fucking nailed it. Yeah, I mean, these don't have bad aftertastes, very subtle flavors. If that's what you're going for, you could crush through the entire pack of these in a night. But you might be the most boring person in the world. <laughs> Yeah, the only other thing is, like, I'm not really getting much of a carbonation bubbliness. I feel like these might be up there for the most chuggable seltzer. Oh, interesting. Like, I think if I was going to, like, shotgun or funnel a seltzer, I think these would be high on my list. 100%. The carbonation is very understated. It doesn't taste like they're flat. I want to be very clear about these. These clearly did not go flat. The carbonation is there, but it is a very mild carbonation. I'm going to be honest. Caribbean dream. I'm not going to dream about it. I'm going to stand up once we're done with this episode and forget this ever happened. Yeah. The only thing that I felt was like a little bit weird is I get like a little bit of butteriness from some of them. I don't know. I don't really know. I certainly get it from the two I have over here. I didn't get it from the dream, but I think I got it from the uh, blast. But the ones that I have over here, I get like a little bit of like a butteriness to them. Oh, sure. That's just kind of like... It's there, but it's not, it's not offensive. I see what you're saying. I just wonder why it's there. Like, I wonder why, I wonder what combination of these fruits is making me taste that or ingredients is making me taste that. I got to say, I mean, with, with all this blasting going on, I was making jokes about finger banging. I mean, this is like one finger, one knuckle. You're getting no action This here. is like the most Mormon finger bang ever. Absolutely. Well, maybe we should talk about TTRPG stuff. Maybe we should. Uh, you good with the split? I'm fine. I'm with totally it. I, fine. I, again, I, you could trade me any of them and I would not care. I think if you blindfolded me and gave me one of these, I couldn't tell you which one it is. Maybe the punch. I remember, like, that's a more distinct flavor yeah. than the rest of these. But even so. But even so, that's. So. I could still be fooled. It tastes like the difference between the smell of two socks that were dried in different dryers. There's just like a slight difference in smell there. And it's the same here. Like it, it wouldn't be detectable by the average person. But if one of those is your dryer, then you would know. 
I see what you're saying. That's a reach, but I see what you're saying. That is wildly specific. I love it. Okay. Well, we do have to move on as fun as those fun waters were because we have 11 episodes to talk about. We really got to fly through these. We haven't done a recap episode in a long time. Honestly, we're going to hit these at a pretty high level. So what are we talking about today? We're talking about all of the episodes so far in book five of Carrying Crown. This is episodes 180 through 191. So just to open up the conversation a little bit, Griffin, this is all book five so far. Let's talk book five in general. We just wrapped 191. How far would you say we are in the book itself? I'd say you're about halfway. Okay, so is this a shorter book? I mean, if we keep that trajectory, that's just over 20 episodes. It is kind of like book four was. It's a two-level-up book Mm -hmm. instead of a three-level-up book. And I think the three-level-up books are generally the ones that, like book two, that are a bit longer. I mean, this is, I'll just tell you on its face, like a introduction to the city, an introduction to an organization, an introduction to a different organization, kind of like a murder mystery, and two very small dungeons. Reading this book, what kind of impression did you get on the structure? It feels a little sandboxy, but I wouldn't call it a sandbox. I don't feel like we have infinite possibilities. It doesn't feel particularly railroady. It gives you a lot of leads. Sure. I'd say, and we'll kind of talk about that as we get into it. Because it's, I mean, I think we luck out that Frey is really the only like full caster we have, and she's not using stuff like. She's not trying to, like, we don't have eclipse to object read and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you, we don't have any of the the kind of mid-level solves right now in this party, aside from Matumbe's, like, crazy skill checks mm-hmm. to get through this investigation. So you guys are doing the investigation kind of by the books like you did an investigation in book two. Okay. The structure of this is supposed to be open-ended until it narrows down. So you guys have gotten to the narrows down point by 91. Yes. And there's still a lot of stuff that's up in the air. I mean, they throw a couple of, I wouldn't call them red herrings, and they're not really red herrings, but a couple of things that are tangential to the plot, like why are these bodies being drained of blood? Why is it vampires with a bunch of spawn? Why is it only happening to vampires? What's going on? Why do we have an alchemist that doesn't seem to know about this, but like is involved in the whispering way somehow? I think inherently, too, there are just a lot of different ways you can take an investigation. I mean, there's an alternate history of this podcast where we spent three more episodes hanging out with the detective and jumping into case files and going back to old scenes of old crimes and stuff. We could have done that. Yeah. Now, it attempts to make that a little bit more difficult for you in the sense that, like, it's just vampires. So the crime scenes are pretty much Mm -hmm. gone in the morning. You stumbled upon the one that is, like, more than dust and stakes. Yes. Right, because a body happened to fall into the alley. But if we were doing our jobs, we could go to all of the old crime scenes and see if maybe there's something in common. Maybe they're all closed alleyways. Maybe they're all, if we looked at a big map, maybe they're clustered in one spot or Mm. clustered in certain spots that, you know, are all close to certain landmarks or something. Those are directions we could have gone. We could have done, we could have really like police proceduraled this. Mm -hmm. So I've been enjoying book five. I feel like it's moving fast and it isn't at the same time. You know, we'll have really in-depth conversations with NPCs and then we'll fly through stuff. And 
that's why I wanted to talk about this at the beginning, because I really don't feel like I have a good understanding of how much progress we've made. And now yeah. I do. Yeah. As opposed to something like a book two that's very clearly laid out. There are three days of trial and then a dungeon. Yeah. Or book four, which is like, you're supposed to go here, check out the temple. You need to go to the house. Then you know you're going to go underwater. There are different ways you can approach it, but it's a little less open-ended. You kind of have an idea at any given point of where you are in your progress of the book. And this, I've been a little bit more up in the air. Book five is a little bit weird in that you kind of have the two ways to go with the vampire underground. Mm -hmm. And I had thought from the beginning with kind of the seeds I set and the way you guys were reacting to them that you would ally with the vampires. But every vampire is statted out as if you could fight them. And the adventure is written with like a paragraph after each part that's like, hey, if the party is fighting the vampires, this is how this changes. So would you say it's fair to say that there is a version of this where we are antagonistic to the vampires and are still able to succeed in our mission? There is. Okay, cool. It would be about 10 more combats. Oh, sure. Yeah. So it would extend book five by a lot more. Mm -hmm. I think that's why it feels very short. This whole segment with the vampires could have been a 25-room dungeon Ugh. between the Restoration Park glass house and the sewer under that and the vampire underground under that. Could have been that, and it could have had 10 more encounters that you guys bypassed by being diplomatic. Yeah. So I'd say we're spending a lot of time on the diplomacy encounters, so I don't necessarily know how... I guess we're going about twice as fast as we would be, right? Because it seems like when you guys are talking to people in these episodes, you're getting a ton of information and you're getting about two very solid conversations, maybe three per episode. And I would say you'd probably be getting one combat per episode if we were moving through it with you as the antagonist. That's a very fair ratio. That's kind of what I had in my mind as well. Like the combat's based on what we've seen so far in book five versus all of the information and the conversations we've been able to have. Let's dive into our recaps here, especially in some of these earlier episodes. I think I want to fly through these because we're already a little deep into this episode and some of this stuff is kind of ancient history at this point that probably doesn't need to be touched on too much. So episode 180, we beheaded to Caliphast. This starts with a level up to level 11 and a little bit of retraining across the party. We have some important moments here where Freya does this cool little maneuver with her coin sack where she makes coins bloody and can infect a thief, mm -hmm. which is something that I know that Emily had been struggling with trying to justify with her corruption, how to make it work. And I think she made it work in a really inventive and interesting way. Yeah, she brought it up to me and she was like, do you think this would work? I was like, your character is currently blind and mm -hmm. kind of obviously so. Of course, like, of yeah. course, if you wanted to do something like that, where you would hang an obviously visible coin purse on your blind character and walk them through town. Yeah, somebody's going to steal that. <laughs> yeah, it was a creative solution to her corruption, and I really appreciated that. Jimbirium shapeshifts to blend in. We have mention of Louvric Savage in Matumbe's book, The Book of the Raven. He's this count that worked with the Church of Phrasma against the Whispering Way. We come up against this Dulahan 
and these three undead bats as the four of us. So us three plus an NPC minus Haley start this fight. Haley jumps in with her brand new character around or two in. So Griff, I'm going to pass it over to you now. Is there anything particularly interesting about this fight? When we kicked it off or rather got through it, it felt a little bit more relevant to the story than some of the other mid book mm-hmm. encounters. I'm thinking phase spider. I'm thinking weaver worm. I'm thinking phase shifter. Is this just kind of a random encounter from the book or is this baked into the beginning? So this is the other dark rider. Oh, sure. Makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. there were two. One, you obviously found in Ilmarsh having failed at his test. This one brought the other stuff to where it needed to be and was rewarded with undeath. So this Dullahan was augmented in the book, was augmented and had a kind of like Ghost Rider chain mace Mm -hmm. that was flaming. Instead, I think Dullahans normally get like a cold weapon and obviously had this Moribound key on it, which is clearly like the impetus of what you guys end up starting to investigate. So this Mm -hmm. wasn't like a random table encounter. This one was definitely supposed to happen. The Weaver Worm was too, and it was like in part one of that book, but this one definitely feels more connected. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Is there anything you wanted to call out or are we good to move along? I think we're going to, I mean, it knew Matumbe as you know now Mm -hmm. because Adivian knows Matumbe. Yeah. And it didn't know the rest of them because Adivian doesn't know the rest of them. So Adivian probably was like, hey, these guys are coming. Watch out for them. Directly sent him to take you out, actually. Oh, okay. I thought this was kind of just a chance encounter because we're both in the same region or whatever. No, he was was was, was sent to be looking for your party specifically and was kind of terrorizing the countryside looking for you. Sure. All right. So that's a good transition to episode 181, Rune and Board. So you mentioned acquiring the Moribund Key. Rune offers to show us around Caliphas and intro us to the esoteric order of the Palatine Eye at Haraday Theater. We know that Aubryn Chalet is there, an NPC from episode two, maybe one. I can't remember exactly, but it was in that first mm-hmm. volley of episodes. At the funeral. Yep. We ended up staying at the Twisted Pine Inn. There were people there worried about murders. We had some opportunity to cure the madnesses of Freya and Air Bear from the end of book four. And then the back half of this episode is the headless body outside that's missing the head and missing blood. So this is, I think, where we start realizing that there's a little bit more to this than actually just killing vampires. They're trying to do something with them. Don't know what. And then there's two piles of ash on the roof. So this seems to be botched in some way. So I don't know if you realize this in the moment, but this crime scene is the vision you received from Desna. Yes. So like as the sun was rising, the corpse in the alley mm-hmm. turned to ash. You're correct that I did not realize that in the moment, but coming back to it, it certainly makes sense. It's fun because that vision ties together this and something that happens later that we can talk about as well. Episode wraps with a visit to Losco. Unique little experience there. Losco trips. Yeah. Something that you mentioned before off air was that every time we come back to Losco, you do a different accent. Why is that? I don't know. Yeah. I, just for different cities. Mm-hmm. I started doing it because when Brooks connected Air Bear to Losco, it felt really weird to have my New York accent, Leopardstat Losco guy. Yep. And like 
German accent air bear be a part of the same family. <laughs> so I was just yep. kind of like, well, I'm going to make them all have different accents. And then I guess it'll make more sense. It kind of makes it work. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of fun. And the we haven't used them yet, but I love the bargain bin wands thing. That was like kind of spur of the moment. I actually gave you guys the wands. That was a bargain. You guys got like 10 spells per. Yeah, we got a ton. Unfortunately, we haven't really had a good opportunity to use most of those wands. And there's some really trash wands, but there's some really good ones too. Yeah, for the listeners, I think it was every hundred gold that someone spent, I rolled a wand mm-hmm. and I rolled basically a um, D6 for the charges, a D4 for the spell level, and then I rolled for the spell list and then I did like a random number generator for yeah. the actual spell. You have like level three, level four spells on yeah. these wands, like but one or two charges of them. Yeah, I'll tell you what, we divided those up between Rune Freya and Matumbe, and we had a lot of wands. My character sheet looks like shit right now. There is <laughs> so much like, trash on there. I have like 12 wands. wands. Yeah. yeah, 12 wands, 10 charges between them. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's all like little bits and pieces of stuff. Moving on to episode 182, it says Esoteric Hoarder. So we visit the Houndstooth Tavern. We talk to the bartender there. He advises that the recent three victims would make number seven, eight, and nine. And we get a little bit of lore here saying that vampires have a long intertwined history with the aristocracy here in Caliphas. We head to the esoteric order of the Palatine Eye gathering at the Haraday Theater. And it seems like they're having some sort of newcomer ceremony Aubryn Chalet takes us to the basement. We do some research. So we research. In my notes, I looked back and saw that we had like two big topics. We got a lot of information on the Carrion Crown. Yep, the formula itself. Yes. I have a lot of that written down here. Quick recap. It's an elixir that can make a specific person a lich. We don't know who that is yet. It has a lot of different components, so... The Warden's Soul from Book 1 is the first part. The Pack Lord's Heart from Book 2 is the second part. The Skull that is made of all the different pieces of Skull from the Furrows from Book 3 is the third part. And the final component was supposed to be the Book of the Raven, but we had that internal power struggle or political nonsense between the Whispering Way and the oh fuck, Dominion of the Black, right? Yep. Yeah, those two fell out. Book of the Raven never made it, and Matumbe has it now. But what we did learn is even though that we have that last piece, there's other stuff that they might be able to substitute for that. So just by having that doesn't mean that the formula is broken. Mm-hmm. We also learned a little bit about vampires in Caliphas and made the connection that they probably are at odds with the Whispering Way because the Whispering Way want to turn everybody into undead. And if everyone's undead, vampires can't eat. Yeah, and that's the gist you got from your book initially as well. Mm-hmm. Final piece of fun stuff in this episode is that there's this gargoyle in the basement that shows us the location of the Whispering Way strongholds with the Moribund Key. There's a trap that was supposed to go off that we sidestepped. I can't remember if we said this on air or off air when we were talking about it. What was that, Griffin? Because you said it, and it could have been nasty. It was a summoning trap, and Mm -hmm. it summoned, uh, I believe it was 1d4 Bone Devils which you actually had fought in the neutral interlude. It's kind of a nod to this coming up. And the, the shitty part about them is that, you know, they can each do that image thing that you saw and a 
create an image of themselves, be invisible, like start summoning another one of them or start ice walling the doors or whatever. It would have been a really annoying fight. I think you guys would have been okay, but yeah, it just, you know, it could have been a couple of bone devils, which would have sucked. Yeah. Close encounters in that basement with air bear cutting loose. The fun we part probably is, would have like, survived, it, but yeah, that's a that's gonna be a grindy fight. When that happens, <laughs> they have it written in the book like Auburn's supposed to get like shocked and like <laughs> fall back into one of the bookshelves, and the bookshelves are supposed oh, to no. fall on top of him, basically as a like out, so that he's not a part of the fight. <laughs> oh, that's so good! <laughs> so, like the bookshelves fall on him, he gets knocked out unconscious. Oh, oh no! <laughs> he gets knocked unconscious, and then you guys have to do the fight without him because I'm so glad that you added that little bit. <laughs> yeah. That's it, funny. Realistically, he's actually relatively high level, but he's yeah. like an expert. You know, he's he's not oh. a he's not a player class. He's an NPC class. Yeah. All right, we got to keep moving here. Episode one eighty three, thrilling account. We spoke to Count Lucinian Geldana, who's returning home from a hunting trip. He lets us know that Countess Califazo, the Countess of Califas, is obsessed with trying to stay young. He talks about last wall nights warning him of activity and virlicht we wrap up that conversation with him Auburn takes us to the archive which is where the whispering way stronghold is supposed to be there's a fresco to Laudamir von dolamine lots of names in this book yeah <laughs> um an ex-ferasman turned ergothoan uh, could be a little uh a little foreshadowing there yeah notably with the book yes that was like where you had to move his arms in the fresco Mm-hmm. to open the... Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't know where it's going, but yeah, like I said, foreshadowing, we'll see lots of cool Ferezman hidden lore in this. That, the Louvre Savage partnering up with the Ferezmans, stuff that they probably would want to keep buried. I've been loving. Anyway, I digress. We go into this stronghold, but it's empty. There's no whispering way there. However, we did meet one Quinley Vandell, a Dampier looking for his mother's killer, who says he can help us get an audience with the Vampire Council and that we may need to fight through some outer defenses and enter at Restoration Park. Anything you want to throw in from that? Big no, lore drop app. Yeah, yeah, big lore drop app. Pretty much all. Although, like, the part that bummed me out about, I don't like that part of the book because it's like, Here's a complete dead end because it kind of throws Quinley at you, right? It's like, here's Quinley who's here. And without Rune, mm -hmm. normally that would be like, oh, there's vampires under Cal. But like Rune knew that. Yeah. And you guys kind of knew that. And so it was like, Quinley's like, hey, I have an in, but I'm just here. Yeah. I'm here in this secret thing. It didn't make a ton of sense to me in the book. Granted, he's like searching for the Whispering Way as well as a kind of like, you know, this might be my mother's killer. It felt like we were getting edged a little bit. Yeah, like, yeah. oh, you're going, you're going to be doing a dungeon crawl, whispering way or in here. It's going to be probably a pretty tough fight. You're going to root them out. I remember you guys even like cast spells yeah. before going. <laughs> like, I, I just had to chuckle to myself because I knew it, it wasn't really going to be anything. Waste of time. Not a waste of time per se. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, episode 184, the brilliantly named Parks in Your Nation. We explore Restoration Park which contains a ton of Caliphas and Ustalov lore, most of which I am not going to recant here because there's just a lot of it. Um, but we we spot some fly traps and treaker mushrooms in the greenhouse. 
There are gardeners working here for tips. <laughs> They're clearly just dominated or something. And Air Bear steals a key, which we'll use later. Keep wandering around a little bit. We find some cool stuff, including some bloody druidic stones. Then a turning point in HLP history. <laughs> Rune casts speak with plants. <laughs> oh, this was so fun. So why did you do that to Haley? Because Brooks said something right before I was doing the plant voice mm. about not peeing on the trees. Okay. And so I was like, no, I think they would want that. Mm-hmm. And then I took that and I ran with it for every plant. L- listen, this was not... So I, I know a lot of people are drawing parallels between this and other shows doing weird stuff with good information spells. This was for laughs. I'm not trying to deter you guys from doing a speak with plants. Mm-hmm. I feel like I gave you a lot of valuable information yes. still. But I wanted to have fun with the plants. Yeah, I know there are... I haven't seen any criticisms of this, but I've seen criticisms of similar things in other shows. What I will say is, yes, it was goofy. I had a ton of fun with it, but we did learn a lot. So it wasn't a waste of time. Yeah. So, yeah. Haley was playing her character well, too, because she was laughing the entire time as well. Yeah. Haley, a quick diversion for a moment here. Haley playing Rune clearly is just having a ton of fun she's yes anding the hell out of the character yeah like we're giving rune a ton of shit and Haley is rolling with the punches so well it's been so much fun to play with rune yeah I've, rune's I've a good character because rune is like tied to this area mm-hmm. and there's not a ton of outside of caliphas backstory i need to try and throw into this character this character is from here and has, yeah. has a vested interest in the vampires clearly Mm-hmm. And is really easy to yes end with because of that. Yep. So it, it's nice. Yeah, it's great having her around. The plants describe Merrick, this druid lady, vampire, and the entrance to the sewers, which happens to be in the greenhouse under one of these fly traps. We return later and begin a fight, which is the kickoff of episode 185, Venus Flyscrap. It's a. This one was a fight, man. Yeah. I got to give just massive props to Emily again in this episode. I'm talking about cool shit she did. The support spells that she was throwing around were complete game changers. I'm going to list a couple out. Blessing of Fervor that we used for the next two episodes to great effect. Dispelling the Thorny Entanglement. Getting Matumbe up out of the pit. Doing massive heals on people. Half of this while blind. Half of this while blind. Again. Just like, just holding it fucking down. An absolute cornerstone of the party here while the rest of us are trying to solve the encounter. Well, and that's what you get with a support cleric. Like, yeah. that's well done. That's how you should be utilizing your, you know, support focused cleric. Yeah. A couple other notable points from this episode. We have really just big slam down encounters with these fly traps while Merrick is hiding in the trees and casting spells and stuff. Ray and Air Bear are blinded. This pit opens that I kind of alluded to earlier under Matumbe and Freya. Yes, I know I have a Ring of Featherfall that I forgot about and took falling damage that I shouldn't have taken, but it got healed anyway. I forget you had a Ring of Featherfall. Yeah, I forget. (laughs) Every time. Every time it's relevant, but it didn't matter anyway. That kind of wraps up that episode. I do want to talk about Merrick, but I'm going to quick overview of 186 before we do, because it's like one big rolling encounter. Yeah. 186 is called In a Blind. Quinley is dominated and attacks Rune. 
Air Bear falls in the pit as well. Freya uses Stone Shape to conduct some sort of ladder thing to escape. Rune puts Quinley down pretty mercilessly. Merrick disappears into the tree and escapes after we try and kill her, but Matumbe whiffs on a pretty crucial attack. Yeah. But that could have gone really badly if he hit her with that dispelling uh, yeah, or dis- it, like, the destruction yeah. that could have really collapsed some of the inroads we were trying to make with the vampires. I know you wanted to talk about Merrick. So now that I've just kind of done a super fast recap of what all happened, how about you do that? Merrick is a level 11 vampire druid who I built from the ground up because I didn't have the character in Hero Lab. The community has built a lot of the Carrion Crown stuff in Hero Lab. Mm -hmm. They didn't build fucking anything in book five. (laughs) So like, I I was great. I had like the color out of space and shit in Mm -hmm. here. None of the special vampires or any of that are in here. So I pretty much just decided I'm going to build her from the ground up. I made her a nature fang druid, so she didn't have wild shape and she had studied target and that kind of stuff. And she has pretty much all of her feats are geared towards the ranged attack stuff. Mm -hmm. So she's kind of similarly built to rune. Sure. In that she has a lot of the like many shot, rapid shot kind of stuff. And I was basically just going to burn through all of her spells until you guys couldn't take it anymore. Before I think at the end of 185, I like popped out of the tree and full round attacked with studied target blind air bear and almost killed him. Yeah. And I wanted to show you guys in that, hey, this isn't primarily a casty druid. So that, you know, this could go bad quickly. And I, I set her up to kind of augment her ranged attacks. So like with all those wind spells and that kind of stuff and trying to entangle you guys at a range, trying to get good vantage points through tree stride. And then she used transport via plants when she like moved Matumbe and that kind of stuff a little bit later. Just a really fun character. I really like playing druids as, as you guys probably saw if you're a patron and mm-hmm. listen to me play Reeve, but that was a completely different druid. And so it's, it's so fun how, how differently you can build a druid because this was a very battlefield control druid that could attack at range. Mm-hmm. And she had, I believe it's like the feather domain, feather or, or hawk or something. She could use Hawkeye as a swift action to add half her druid level to one ranged attack nice. per round. I mean, she could do that nine times a day. So I could pretty much guarantee hit you guys with the many shot, mm-hmm. which is really strong. And she had great spells. I think druids have an overlooked spell list. Even Thorny Entanglement, which was like, I think that's like a level three spell, is just like such a great battlefield control spell. And I think you guys realize what happened in this combat when you fight a druid on exactly their home turf. Yeah. This would have been way easier if you fought her on the streets of Caliphas, right? But oh, yeah. You fought her in a greenhouse filled with trees and that kind of, you know. Mm-hmm. You kind of got to give a druid enemy their favorite environment to really make them shine and you guys like she was able to get away this was a really tough combat for you i wasn't pulling any punches so i felt like it was difficult it was i could feel the frustration when she left and you eventually found out that i kind of had a plan for what was going to happen <laughs> indeed all right well let's keep it moving here we got a still got several episodes to talk about episode 187 better dominate than never we heal up we head into the sewers And we start a fight with four vampire spawn that's very choked through a door. Air Bear is dominated, sent for a swim. 
Matumbe is dominated and told to lay down. The vampire spawn tastes him, something clicks, and he's sent into the next room where our good buddy from the last episode, Merrick, is waiting. She tastes his blood and teleports him to a dining room, again from episode 100, from that vision. And Matumbe's daughter there is present, Kiza, and they're reunited. That pretty much sums up the episode, but this encounter again was one that I know you altered a little bit, Griffin. Yeah, it was like a fight eight advanced spawn type encounter. So I was like, that's a little bit much to keep track of. So I made them like level three monks Mm -hmm. and I reduced the number to four of them. And I think that made the encounter a little bit more, (laughs) more manageable in the tight space. Yeah, I don't really enjoy when Paizo just says, hey, throw 10 enemies in this 30 by 15 room. It's a lot to keep track of. It's a lot to keep track of, of, but it's too cramped. It's just, it's not as fun. And and I lucked out here with you guys getting dominated. I think the encounter would have been over very quickly had that not happened. And you wouldn't have the very easy, almost scripted sounding, like, get Matumbe away and like, oh, I I brought all of that in once you were dominated. Mm -hmm. I was like, fuck, this is perfect. Perfect opportunity. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. To separate you because it it felt so good to be able to separate Matumbe and have Matumbe have that experience by himself, like have the experience of reuniting with his daughter by himself. And I didn't think I was going to get to pull that off. I honestly was trying to do that to you in the regular encounter with her. Yeah. And she had so little health at the end. And I was like, I got to save the opportunity to potentially be able to do this. Because I was like, if I could do this, it's going to be so juicy. But uh, I'm running out of ammunition to be able to do it. Now Matumbe has his friends around him. I'm not going to be able to like grab him or do- I tried to dominate you like two times. I spent two of her turns in the druid fight yeah. trying to dominate yeah. you. And it didn't work. So to have one of the spawn dominate you was just perfect. And it worked out really well, I think. But if that had not happened, obviously you would have fought through and went deeper in and probably had another fight if Matumbe hadn't got taken in. And then it probably would have taken one fight for them to be like, okay, we're going to take you to Louvric. We're going to figure this out. Yeah. And I think that pretty naturally leads into episode 188, Bad Blood. This was a dual focus episode, and I got flashbacks from remember the Piper of Ilmarsh fight mm-hmm. where everybody is in this round by round fight and the Piper and Matumbe are on this like demi plane almost or in his oh, dreams or whatever. Father Charlatan. Father yeah, Charlatan. Father, uh, yeah, it, was, then, it was in the Piper yeah. fight, but Father Charlatan's a shitty haunt where once the person take, that you focus on takes mm-hmm. damage, you get to do this like weird mental thing and trap them. Yes. So I got flashbacks to that because it felt very similar. It's this dual focus where there's this combat going around that's rounds regular combat. We're playing action to action. And the Matube side story is a little bit more free form. I'm not like taking a swift action to talk or anything. But basically, we're introduced back to Kiza and realize that she's a vampire along with her savior from the book one flashback of Evelyn. This character, very interesting. The team itself, so Air Bear, Rune, Quinley, and all them, win the combat and head deeper into the catacombs. They don't know where Matumbe is because he's not in the room that he went into. They get an audience with Louvric Savage, who gives us a little bit of info on the Whispering Way and will give us more and help us out if we're able to stop the killings of vampires. This is when Kiza and Matumbe return back into the room. Everybody's together, and we're about to transition into 189. Probably pretty open and shut, right? Yeah. All right, 189, Head Turner. 
this episode is basically three big conversations. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So our first one is Luvrik Savage. He believes that the Caliphas nobility is behind the attacks on vampires, but doesn't know who or why or what. He needs us to investigate. He describes Archminos, this Nosferatu vampire alchemist that they have in custody that he thinks is responsible or at least involved in some way, shape, or form that we can talk to. He also says that we can go talk to Evelyn again. We can talk to this. Wh- what was his place? Ed Turner's place in all of this? He's like uh, he's like on he, the council. He's like, or? Yeah, he's he's on the council for sure. He's mm-hmm. kind of Luvrik's retainer. So he deals with more of the minutia of the vampiric council mm-hmm. than Luvrik does. And he kind of brings issues to Luvrik and that kind of thing. So. And Turner has some information on these killings, which we'll talk to him about by the end of this episode. We have Lady Ivanya, who we don't meet this episode, but we know she's a vampire noble who's kind of sequestered away down in the catacombs with them as well. <laughs> Evelyn heals us up. There's a reveal that she worships Ergothoa, just like that ex Asmin we saw in the fresco earlier. There is a little bit of a religious debate back and forth with Matumbe and advises that the stakes that were used in the murders of these vampires are similar. And they seem to be from furniture. Yeah, I really like that kind of ideological back and forth mm-hmm. between her and Matumbe because it's like, you're the woman that carried my book. Yeah. That's like, so a lot of what went into that conversation was kind of like a, oh, that's how some people fall into these other religions. It felt very much like I didn't have anywhere else to turn. I wanted to protect myself and this child. Like Evelyn and Matumbe are two sides of the same coin. You could flip-flop them, or you could easily see where Matumbe could end up like Evelyn, or Matumbe is an indicator of what Evelyn would be if she never died. Right. Like, they're very much so in parallel to each other, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this is something I've been planning since the beginning, this reveal that your daughter and the person that saved your village didn't actually die. They actually succumbed to vampirism. It's very satisfying the journey Matumbe has been on thus far, having him interact with that. At the beginning of an adventure, you never really know. Like, this is a seed about a plant in this fortune teller vision, and I want to revisit it in five books from now. Yes, and to that point, truly... I think it was maybe halfway to three quarters of the way through book one. We had talked and kind of had a a rough idea of like, quote unquote, whose book each character's was. And when I had heard that Matumbe's was book five and I had kind of seen his performance through the front half of that book, I was like, there's no fucking way I'm going to make it a book five. There's no way. And then I was kind of always headcanoning my way through, okay, how is this actually going to play out when we get there without Matumbe? And lo and behold, we actually made it here with yeah. Matumbe. I was contemplating that as well because Matumbe at his core is still kind of like, he's still a person that like reminisces about his family. He still talks about his family, even though, mm-hmm. you know, he went on this spiritual journey and is on this spiritual journey. And <laughs> it would kind of suck if we didn't have any original party members at this point, but I, yeah. I still like to think that Kizu would have seemed like such a fish out of water in this vampire underground that someone in the party that had talked to Matumbe would piece that together if Matumbe wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Just based off of like 
what he talks to the party about and maybe we don't even role play that as much but it just it makes sense that Matumbe would talk about you know why he's on his journey to new members of the party and that kind of thing oh yeah and this has just been a really difficult book for him in that it really calls into question everything he knows about his faith his motivations for leaving his family behind everything is not the way that he understood it to be and I'm very I don't know how this is going to play out and I don't know how I'm going to role play it as big things change we've talked a little bit about all sorts of stuff and the different ways this could go and I don't know how it will go this feels so different to me than it felt in book three with Ikmer Uh, because in, in book three with Ikmer it felt so right for that character to have that story arc and the growth he had had up to book three for that to be like his crowning moment. Yes. And with Matumbe, I just have like with Ikmer, I knew I asked Brooks, but I almost didn't have to ask him. I was like, Hey, this is what's going to happen with Ikmer. Are you okay to leave him here? Are you okay to leave the character here? And it was like, yes, that's what I want for the, like the Prince of Wolves. Of course. Makes sense. And with Matumbe, I have no fucking idea what's going to happen here. And honestly, neither do I. That's that's not hyperbolic. <laughs> Which makes it fun. Right. That's part of the fun. I don't know in a perfect world if we resolve book five and Matumbe is still alive and Keys is still around, if he continues on with the party or he needs to stay or he wants to stay. I truly don't know what I would choose to do in that situation for this character. And I'll say in that moment, I'll do what the character should do. Yeah. I don't care if the fans think that an original party member should go through all six books. If I think it's the right thing to do for him to stay behind and be with his daughter, then that's what's going to happen. If it doesn't feel right and he has unfinished business to achieve, then I'll keep going into book six. But I'm going to do right by the character. And maybe that's unsatisfying in some ways to listeners, but I don't give a shit. Like He's your character. Right. I don't know how it's going to play out. And in a way, I find comfort in that. I'm going to go with what's what I think is right for the character. And we'll see what that is. I don't know. Yeah. It's been a wild ride, but we'll see how it goes. So after that little digression, we got to talk about this conversation with Turner. And fuck, Brooks just did a great job. Yeah. <laughs> I loved every second of that. I have a little bit of follow up here. Let me recap this conversation. And then I have a little bit of insight that I want to offer. So he talks about how he gave some documents to Louvric that were bounties on vampires. This indicates that Archminos may be a killer, but certainly is not the only one. If he is a killer, there could be many people killing vampires. He seems to indicate with this information that the campaign against vampires by nobles apparently is legit and gives some good fashion advice. However, so we had that episode. I think we recorded. I can't remember when we recorded this. It was probably a Thursday or a Friday. No, it was a, it was a weekend one. It was the second one of a, of a block. Okay, that's why. That's why it was Friday night, and then on Saturday morning. This is we never do this. I went on a hike with Brooks. Yeah, just the <laughs> two of us. Never happens. Like usually, you know, we'll have Emily around, or like it's a whole gang. The two of us went to a metro park. Just the two of us, and. I really enjoyed it. I had a a really good time just hanging out with Brooks. And a lot of it was me just talking at him about like what I think's going on. And I 
told him I don't want any spoilers because he obviously knows more about Turner and his relationship to this than anybody else. But I appreciated that opportunity just to kind of voice my concerns like, yeah, I know Turner is evil. He was in the evil interlude, but as a vampire, clearly a vampire, if he actually is working with the Whispering Way, he's working against his own self-preservation in that, you know, we talked about this earlier. Mm-hmm. And I truly don't know where he falls or why. And we've seen with evil interlude characters them shake out different ways. Nana Opal is a big evil bad guy with the Whispering Way. Viv was a big evil bad guy with the Whispering Way, but there were other complexities too here. Saw ended up being a good guy that joined the party. Is Turner a guy that joins the party or the good side with the vampires? Is he a big bad in disguise or is he somewhere in between? I had no idea. And that's why I really liked this encounter because I left with as many questions as I had going in. When I loved it because I knew you guys were going to be suspicious the second. Yeah. You, you guys were suspicious the second Luvrick said Ed Turner, my yeah. retainer. You were suspicious. And so I knew you were coming into that encounter with a lot of suspicion. And we've been recording this show for so long. I'm okay with those kind of reveals because I trust you guys to play your characters and not turn the encounter into like a, I roll 20 cents motive checks, uh, blah, yeah. blah, 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 because I know this guy's bad because he was bad because we played him. And so it was really fun to hear that play out where you played your characters like they weren't immediately suspicious of him. Mm-hmm. And you see him in a very different light because of that. There are nearly 10 years of history that we don't know about Ed Turner in the 10 years that saw transitioned into Sawyer and had like a lot of history, a lot changed. He became a completely different character. It's not unreasonable to think that Turner had the same thing or a similar thing or didn't. We didn't know. And that was fun. And truly even at the end of 191, when he's kind of implicated as a bad guy, I think it's still plausible that he's not, or there's more to the story at least. Yeah. I don't think it's quite as black and white as someone being in the evil interlude should be. It's a little bit more gray than that. I'm sure there's something else. He's not a mustache twirling bad guy. Yes. That's, and that's certainly without a mustache, what you get with Nana Opal. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, Nana Opal is evil as evil gets, right? Yeah. If she did take the prehensile hair Witch hex, then maybe <laughs> mustache twirling. But yeah, I do appreciate that everybody is like a different flavor of evil. It's weird how that's evolved outside of the interlude. You know what I mean? I just feel like the depth of these characters mm-hmm. is much more, and then we've made it more, but is much more than like a 17 episode series or whatever Yeah, that we've done with them. It's kind of fun. It's fun to see how it like all turns out. It is. There's still a lot to learn. We got to keep moving. Episode 190. All right. This is another lots of exposition, lots of conversations, lots of questions getting answered. I'm going to fly through this. We talked to Archminos. He provided alchemical services to Count Teriak. Yep. Who wants to be able to walk in the sunlight. This is a vampire. Can't do that presently. Uh, Luvric Savage is scared of this guy. Apparently. According to Archminos. Uh, yes. Yes. According to Archminos. Apparently, Archminos was hired by the Whispering Way to test an elixir of lichdom. Pretty obviously the Carrion Crown, although we didn't get that in writing. He was hired by a Divion, and he supposed that the elixir is maybe for the Prince of Ustalav. Metagaming-wise, I've never 
met the Prince of Uslav yet, so it's like, I don't know, why would... Okay, sure, that's plausible, but I don't know. We'll see. He also says, if we clear his name, he's going to give us a sample of the elixir, which is going to be good. Good research. He also talks about a job that he had. He needed to make a youth elixir for the Countess Califazo, but failed. Now she's working with witches, who he supposes may be using vampire blood to do that, but he doesn't know. He suggests we speak with some newly turned spawn, and we end that conversation. We head on over to Lady Ivania's eternal party that she's holding while she is sequestered away. She is scared of being assassinated because she has a lot of spawn. Some of the people that have been assassinated have a lot of spawn. She is married to a very regular humanoid bartender. <laughs> I have in my notes Jackie Daytona because that's who this is. Danny, like, Absalom. Danny Absalom. of From course. the Isle of Courtiers. Of course. Apparently the new spawn are acting weird. She also says we should visit them and maybe talk to Evelyn about being newly turned, Evelyn and Kiza. Yeah, so this is something you guys really keyed onto, which mm-hmm. I, th- I think is very relevant to this investigation is like, oh, hey, we're starting to realize that like all of these vampire nobles were turned into vampires by their masters. Mm-hmm. Their masters didn't die. Yeah. And so there's something different that's happening now as all of these vampires are dying and their spawn are turning to vampires. Yeah, what is this shakeup? Yeah. Why is it happening? What does it mean? We have some unanswered questions that I want to get answered. This was a very fun encounter. We had a good time screwing around. Again, we had fun with it, but we learned some really interesting stuff. Freya dancing. Freya dancing. <laughs> Matumbe and Air Bear doing the Soldier Boy. Yep. Which... Your courtly grace is not really holding up. <laughs> nope, nope. Soldier Boy is a dance that I have a long history with that will probably talk about on another Zone of Truth. Soldier Boy Week or something. Soldier Boy Week. Yeah, we'll do a Soldier Boy Week. Two hours. Hopefully. We plan to rest, talk to Evelyn, then the spawn, then do the decoy trick in Restoration Park with, I have in my notes, Jackie Daytona, but of course, Danny Absalom. That's episode 190. That's 190, baby. Episode 191. I actually don't have in my notes because we recorded this last night. And work but with this will be out before the, or after that. So. That is correct. So we can talk about it. I just don't have any notes on it because I didn't have time to add it. So what happened in this episode? We headed back to go to sleep. We were looked in on by Kiza and some adult. I'm assuming Evelyn because the two of them are kind of attached at the hip. But we don't have evidence that to be the case. We try to go to bed. Kiza dominates Matumbe. You find a dead body in the oh, yeah. alley. Dead body. We just kind of leave it. It's fine running theme of book five Matumbe getting dominated now well Matumbe has the very intense dream with Urgothoa right before yes, that happened. that's true I did not mention that as I mentioned in the episode I don't know what to take away from that it was a little cryptic mm-hmm. but as I indicated a pretty like BFD big fucking deal yeah I'm very interested to see where this goes that's pretty much all I'll say on the matter. Yeah. I don't have enough information to make any more definitive statements, but I thought it was very cool. I loved the imagery of thinking it was the Boneyard and then it's actually not. It's this perversion. It's Abaddon or rather maybe a empty. Little, yeah. Her little like, like Disney, but there's nobody there. Ooh, that's a terrifying image. I yeah. don't like that. But that's what you would be thinking. Yeah. I mean, the Boneyard is full of souls 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. And after this is when Kiza bites Matsume, gives him the vampirism corruption. Now, notably, she never bites you on air. She just dominates you. 
but how do I get the corruption? You've been bitten. Now that's an important distinction to make. Okay. I had assumed, but that's very fair. So what does that mean? Don't have it offhand, but <laughs> I guess Matumbe is evil again. Well, not necessarily. You take a step towards evil with uh, step one, don't you? Oh, I guess you would. Yeah. And I'm true neutral. Yeah. I'm back to bad boy Matumbe again. Neutral evil, maybe. Yep. So that'll be fun. There are some... Well, uh, notably, uh, we'll have to check the notes. You don't move towards step one until something happens in some of them. In other ones, you do move directly to, like, you You have your... So, like, for a werewolf, for instance, mm-hmm. you don't move to step one until there's a full moon and you fail that will save. Yeah, we'll have to talk about this off air to make sure exactly where I'm at. But I've picked my manifestations. That's cool. Yeah. Do you want to describe them or do you want I to do. Let them play out? I think I want to describe them because there are some that are very cool, but I don't think you're ever going to use that much. Not even that I'm necessarily that I'm not going to use them, but I just might not describe them. And I think you'll understand why in a second. A lot of them are bad. Mm-hmm. You get a slam attack for a D6. If you confirm a crit, you do a negative level. Yeah, instead of great. A vampire that does it on every hit. Yeah, and yeah, I'd love to do that instead of my fucking Undead Bane plus five book or whatever. Like, that makes a lot of sense. So what did I pick? I actually ended up picking four. Mm-hmm. So I picked Allure. I get a plus two racial bonus on bluff, diplomacy, and intimidate checks. Oh, great. You'll see that uh, actually <laughs> these stack well with my skills build. <laughs> and when I reach manifestation level third which I will. These bonuses increase to plus four. There are stains involved with these, but I'm going to kind of gloss over that. Children of the night. I can summon a rat swarm or a wolf. Yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. Regular vampires do that. Yeah, yeah, that's fun. I haven't really used that on you guys. I no. just feel like at this level, it's kind of like, all right, rat swarm, whatever. No, and that's why I picked it. The stain gives me a slight hit to ride and handle animal checks, which I'll never, ever use. It's like, okay, if I need a rat swarm for whatever reason, I got yeah, one. Yeah. It's like free damage to most stuff, right? As, as yeah, long as it doesn't exactly. have DR. And I might need that. Yeah. So the next one I picked up was Dreadful Charm, which is an evolution off of Allure. So once per day, when you succeed at a bluff, diplomacy, or intimidate check against a creature, you can charm that creature as if using Charm Monster. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's a really good one. Yeah. It doesn't last long. I don't believe... That's actually like a cool evolution of... Because vampires don't get dominate monster, they get yeah. dominate person. So, yeah, charm monster, that's fucking great. It's yeah. way more open. What I will say is that if, if the creature fails its save, it's charmed for a number of minutes equal to your character level. I believe charm is usually like hours. Hour, yeah. yeah. So it's much shorter, but that's definitely that's enough, still time enough for to us get like, away from get it. Get the fuck out of there. You're our buddy. Yeah. And then vampiric grace. You get dodge as a bonus feat. Hell yeah, I'll take that AC every day. You didn't have dodge already? Nope. Hey! Yeah, exactly. Like, that rocks. I think you get dodge and mobility with World of Square, right? Dodge. dodge yes, you, you get... Yeah. So, yeah, it helps with your, like, AOOs if you're if you're going to get an AOO. And then uh, Vampiric Grace. Also, you get the dodge and a plus two racial bonus on stealth checks. Okay, Bumping just stacking the skills. Yeah. So, actually, in a lot of ways, this corruption mechanically is very fitting for Matumbe. Skills boy. Yeah. It works out quite well. That was a nice little diversion. There are some stains that come along with those, but I don't have time to talk about that because we're like way over time on this episode already. <laughs> 191, 
what else do we got going on? Is there anything else super important? We go to the furniture store. They indicate that, oh yes, something very important. Turner. Wood guy. Oh yeah, you're right. Wood guy is the big important thing yes. that we need to talk about. No, I mean, great NPC, but Turner apparently put in some sort of work order for the furniture mm-hmm. through his assistant or friend or whomever. I can't remember if we use an exact word, but this is Shala. Also of the evil interlude. Also of the evil interlude, who I had no idea how she was coming back or if she was even coming back, but Shala's coming back. How cool is that? That's awesome. Yeah, if you remember, if you remember, they left together to gain influence because Turner and Shala kind of had the same, I guess, Mm -hmm. ideology, which was like kind of to get a mass power in a community and that kind of thing. So. Now they're both connected to vampire nobility. I guess they fish their wish. Yeah, I can't wait to see where this turns out. And apparently we'll find out in 192. I think this pretty much wraps up our book five review so far. Unless you had anything else you wanted to add, Griffin? No, I don't think so. We talked about a ton. Yeah, we really did. Let's hit a couple listener questions before we get out of here, okay? Yeah. I think maybe we'll only do two. First one from Sir Newt. This is in reference to Poseidon's Bounty Riptide, which we just recorded. If you had to choose one of these bounties to eat every day for a year, which would it be? Now, I rated the Popeye's spicy sandwich and the Swenson's sandwich equally as high. Yep. Bluefish, I believe, is the highest rating. I'm going to say the Swenson's because having spicy food every day for 365 days is going to really tax my system. I agree with you. I think the Swenson's, like if you wanted it to be spicy, you could add hot sauce. Exactly. Right? There you so, go. Although I think I, I like the Popeye's one maybe a little bit better, but I yeah, I wouldn't want that every day. I could make the Swenson's one palatable to myself every day, maybe. I think there's an argument to be made for if it's just one sandwich, picking the White Castle slider. Oh, yeah, just like little. bang yeah. it out, get it done. Mm-hmm. But if it is the full portion where you're doing a few sliders, eh, those were not worth wow. it. Dry as fuck. Yeah. All right. The other question that I want to answer tonight before we do a little bit of wrap-up housekeeping is from Biometric Magical. You mean Biomechanomagical? Yeah, yeah, that's what. Okay. A long name, okay? It's been a long episode. Question for Griffin Steep. How do you start to listen to a new actual play podcast? I often start with the latest episode instead of their first, because the first episode so rarely shows what the show will have become a year or two later, and then go back to the start at the beginning if it sounded like it went somewhere interesting. That's a good question. Where would you start, Griffin? Well, I would say I'm usually a little bit more in the loop Mm -hmm. in the sense that I'm not usually catching a show when it's like two years into its run. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to listen to it, I I usually, at this point, if it's like a Pathfinder podcast, like we have the blessing of Jason being a mod on Discord and stuff. We know about new shows when they happen. We know, and then we have a really good network of people that will just tell us if the show's good. Yeah, exactly. So I do, I do rely on word of mouth a decent amount because there's only so many hours in the day. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like I'm often catching a show 100 episodes into its runtime anymore. Yeah. That said, I usually check the first episode for sound quality. And if the sound quality is decent... I will listen to the first episode first. I won't listen to a later episode. I'll stick to the first episode. See if I can enjoy and distinguish the personalities and voices, knowing that the voices will, the character voices, if they do have character voices, will likely change a little bit between episode one and wherever they end up in episode 10, right? 
but if the audio quality is good in one, I'll listen to one. And because I know that episode ones are usually like a big setup for the campaign, I'll probably give it, I usually give it like a couple more to get an idea of how the party plays together, how they actually like understand the rules of the game and that kind of thing. And if it's to my taste, I'll continue listening. If the audio quality is bad in episode one, I listen to episode 10. Mm. And if it is bad in episode 10, I drop the show. And that is personal preference for me. I, I don't have enough time to listen to shows with bad audio quality. It doesn't have to be immaculate. I don't expect it to be, especially that earlier on. Ours wasn't, but, you know, it's also, at this day and age, I, I think it can't be a, like, Yeti blue Mike snowball and, uh, in the yeah. middle of the room. I, I'd like there to be separate mics. I'd like the, you know, if it's a remote show, the internet noise i don't even know how to describe it the like i'm on a remote mic noise to be to a minimum no eating and all that crap on the show we obviously drink on the show we're obviously guilty of the slurp for however long that's true but that's not something that i feel like is like egregious the entirety of the episode and i'm forgiving of it sometimes but if it's like a bag of chips i'm kind of like guys come on i think you and i are pretty much aligned here although i might even be a little bit more strict than you I will kind of see what our community is saying about the show and I'll give it a shot. If I don't enjoy episode one, whether it's audio quality or table dynamic or people not really popping, I'm not going to listen to episode two. I want to be very, very, very clear. That's not me coming after anybody or saying that a show's bad because they have a not exciting episode one. I purely just don't have time to listen to, to something if it doesn't grab my attention right away. I have two or three podcasts that I like to listen to every single day of the week that drop every single day of the week. If I'm trying to fit something into my schedule beyond that, it really needs to be pushing my buttons. My capacity for listening to content is already at a maximum. Yeah, I'm sure there are great podcasts out there that have a not great episode one and a fantastic episode five and beyond. I just do not have capacity to weed through them. And I feel exactly the same. I mean, I will be dead honest. I don't really listen to actual plays that much anymore. I just don't have time. And the ones I love, I'm not caught up on. And if I do listen to a new one, I I try to follow that criteria. But I'm probably not your long haul listener. I'm going to listen because you're a new part of the community and I'll hear it. And if I like it, I'll probably be like, hey, you guys are doing a great job. Like, Way to go. Upvote. Five stars. Yeah. Great. Upvote. Five stars. Like, reach out to the people and be like, hey, you're doing a great job. Retweet their episode or something. Like, hey, mm-hmm. you guys are awesome. But I'm probably honestly not, like, continuing to listen. And that's just a that's a time thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean your show's not great, but it is. it kind of is what it is. And I don't think any of these, you know, new shows should have other podcasters as their target audience anyway. But... That being said, my strategy is my strategy. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. and I, and honestly, I wish I did have more time to be more caught up on the shows that I do really enjoy because I, I think the best way to get me to listen to your podcast in general is to like have already been a part of my community and be my friend. I'm yeah. probably, de- you know, whether, you're sh- no offense, but whether, whether your show is like, 
goes against my rules, I'm gonna want. I'm gonna be biased to want to listen to it anyway because I know you're cool or I like you. Yeah, be cool enough to make us feel guilty for not listening. <laughs> that, yeah, that should be rule number one if you want me to listen to your show. Yeah, but I think just have like decent audio quality at the beginning for me. I love hearing different people's takes on stories. I mean, I'm fickle enough where it's like I don't really want to listen to this one. I just don't. I'm not into that AP. Yeah, same here. Like, I don't really want to listen to Tyrant's Grasp. I'm fucking wrist deep in the butt of carrying crown. Oh, God. You know? You're not wrong, though. Yeah. You're giving them the Caribbean dream of carrying crown. <laughs> All right. You know what? I said that was the last question, but I'm going to fly through this one. I got to ask, how did Kitsune vote? This comes from Fez. I'm just going to say, show up on a drunken discordly, I'll tell you. I was going to say breast milk, but sure. <laughs> That's it. Yep. You're correct. That's it. Any housekeeping? Yes, I do have housekeeping, actually. So I have a couple things that I want to promo really quick because I did some guest spots or have some upcoming guest spots that I think folks listening to this show would be really excited about. Everybody should check out an episode that I did with Pod Against the Machine that dropped a little while ago. They're a fantastic podcast going through the Iron Gods AP. We actually hung out with Jarris Tack is the username of the dude. He's in our Discord right now. Uh, Hi, Jeff. Yeah, Jeff, great fucking dude at PaizoCon in 2019. But I guest starred on this game. This was something called The Brian Identity. It is part three. It's called part three, but you can listen to it independently if you want to. This was a charity stream for Jasper's Game Day that we recorded a couple months ago now. I was on there. It also featured Daft from To Have and To Roll, another great podcast out there in our space. But the audio of that is on the Pot Against the Machine feed right now. So go download it, check it out, rate them really high because it is a really good show. And you can see me play a very unoptimized ranger. It's just a good time. Kasatha, if I recall. Yes, a bow nomad. And with uh, not having elephants in the room and all that stuff, worse than just taking a regular ranger. Interesting. Then we got a debut date. So this is my next thing I want to plug. On April 18th, catch me on the Southern Tomfoolery Twitch channel for the beginning of Twin Heists. This is the second season of STF and Friends. We're going to be playing through the Great Grav Train Robbery and a to-be-announced heist back-to-back. This is going to be GM'd by Heath. So excited. I love Heath to death. He's just a wonderful dude and going to be phenomenal in the GM seat. We're also starring... Emily and John from STF as part of the heist crew, as well as Tony from Dice Versa. I played with Tony in one of the STF Conline games last year, and he was a joy to play with. So this is going to be an awesome crew, an awesome little thing, and you'll be able to see my face, and I'm pretty hot. So, like, that's a good win. Mm, Um, uh, Moving on. uh, I think the, the only other thing we might have to plug is that we don't have anything solid yet, but Griff, I still think we're tentatively planning to be at PaizoCon 2022. No solid plans yet. Uh, for me. You and I are going to be there. Yes. Uh, we'll see how much more we can get. I know there's lots of stuff going on. Uh, you, you and I will be there. We'll be there. Yes. Hell or high water. Hell or we high will water. We'll be there. Uh, and this is a good point to mention that, you know, we, we like to drink at PaizoCon. We did last time. Uh, you know, if you can't get a ticket to the event, we're probably going to be wandering around Seattle. Yes. So if you're near that area, we are going to have some sort yeah. of get together. Yeah, we're definitely going to have a get together outside of PaizoCon and probably be spending most nights outside of the convention. Mm-hmm. 
as is tradition. Bring me something local that's gonna blow my socks off. Yeah. We'll but not like in the, the bad boy drink pull way, like the good beer. Hopefully we'll pull the Wheeler Woe crew out of retirement. Ooh, I think Woody's coming out. Yeah. yeah that's what he told me. So I, I'm going to hit the rest of them up, but it's going to be a lot of fun. Anything else before we sign off? I don't think so. Except uh, you should finish your drinks because we'll see you in two weeks. Later. Later.